Welcome to another edition Hello. of Thinking Like a Lawyer. Oh, there we go. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. That is Chris Williams from Above the Law. Also doing the the patented Catherine interruption. Uh, Catherine's, of course, not here, although we're very happy that she pinch hit last week. Meanwhile, yeah, we're here, to, as always, to discuss the big news stories on Above the Law's pages of the week. But first, because we want to make it seem like we have personalities, we begin, as always, with a little bit of small talk. All right, what's up? How was your trip? Well, you weren't here last week, so how was that? Yeah, well, nothing says uh, personality like bad news. So no, I think no. the, the last I was on this uh, time-honored tradition of a podcast, I, was, I said that I was slated to go to India. Uh-huh. That did not happen. I don't know no. what, I don't know who I pissed off or why, but so they, they greenlit uh, my partner's visa, but not mine. And thankfully, because I have, you know, good taste in the people I decided to date, they decided to not go to an entirely different okay. country without me. <laughs> but, you know, but yeah, that sucked. Um, so instead, we just went to uh, Thailand, uh, mostly stayed in the, in the hotel because for me, it was a work week. You know, just, mm-hmm. you know, if in we'll, we'll talk about the work week during the podcast. But right, yeah, it right. was it was nice. It was a chance to get out the house and, you know, it's some fucking hate bureaucracy, man. I would have been able to get a multi-month visa, but because of COVID, which nobody still like acknowledges or act like exists, they've moved it to just being like 30 day, you know, then you got to leave the country and come back. So the last couple of trips, it has been straight up visa runs. And oh, okay. I would have much rather used that money for pizza. <laughs> well, fair enough. So sorry that didn't work out on, you know, on our end, we, you know, I, I, I've been doing some planting trying basically to, you know, it's it's not even planting pretty stuff. It's planting anything that can choke out weeds. You know what I mean? This is all stuff that two decades living in the city I didn't really think about, but now I have to. Speaking of, if you decide for some reason, oh, my name is Joe Patrice, I'm going to plant mint. Do not mm. plant that shit in an open plot. Like, get a- get It a, takes get over. Because it takes over. It's like it's like the NRA's interpretation of the Second Amendment. Like once it gets Ooh. a hold, it's over. <laughs> well, you know, it, well, on that note, one of the things that I'm looking to plant is thyme, which also does the same thing. <laughs> but um, yeah. but apparently, creeping thyme is known for that too. It takes over, but it takes over and chokes out all the weeds. So you know, you're taking your pick mm. anyway. Oh well, yeah. So I think that's 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 a that's a good amount of small talk, right? Did we do a good job? Yeah. I think so. Yeah. All right. So let's hit the horn. All right. Let's talk uh, about big legal stories. Uh, The biggest story that we have going on uh, at the moment, carrying over from the last week or so, uh, there was a graduation time is here. Congratulations to all the law school graduates out there for all your accomplishments. That also means that law school commencements were happening. And one in particular happened at CUNY Law School that got a little more coverage than it usually does. I think is a fair way to put it, right? I mean, it sounds about accurate. What happened specifically? Uh, The student speaker who is invited to speak gave a speech talking about, you know, the usual platitudes of 
you know, congratulations, we're going to fight for our clients, whatever. But given that this is CUNY law, uh, where, you know, it's a little bit more public interest law work uh, that comes out of that school, those clients tend to be clients fighting against interests that tend to uh, invite some uh, some criticism and also tend to push back with some criticism. So she did a lot of references to ICE, uh, to the NYPD, to the state of Israel, and talking about work that she and her colleagues in law, in graduating from law school should be doing to fight those institutions on behalf of downtrodden clients. Uh, this resulted in a bit of an uproar on social media as well as the New York Post jumped on talking about the vile hate speech uh, that she engaged in. Uh, I also I saw I engaged in a whole conversation on Twitter over the weekend, some people talking about how she should be in trouble for her blatant calls to violence. Uh, there's none in the speech. Uh, she calls for people to represent folks in court. Uh, but it really was a testament to how these sorts of stories take on lives of their own and nobody bothers to check what the actual speech was. But yeah. Anyway, the article that we wrote about it, because many people are arguing about this hate speech, what to do. There's a Republican lawmaker who's introducing legislation to defund CUNY as a public law school because this speech happened. A lot of articles about that. The point that I wanted to make was in my piece was it's real interesting. You know, we've talked on this show a lot about the campus free speech crisis TM that is all over the place. We have Judge Ho and Judge Branch talking about Yale Law School being out of control. The Washington Free Beacon continues to write stories. They wrote one about Princeton this weekend about all of these, you know, these people who just are trying to use their authority to crack down on free speech. And by free speech, they mean unpopular right-wing opinions. And it was real interesting that they got real quiet when there was an attempt to use the government to shut down a public law school for having this woman say, you know, all, all things considered, fairly standard fare within the uh, public interest law world. What are your thoughts on the substantive claims. So for example, during the speech, he made comparisons between the conflict happening in uh, Palestine and Israel in that area and made parallels between the recent killing on the subway in New York City. What are your thoughts on the actual content on like of the whether, speech? Yeah, on whether or not this really is hate speech. So yeah, that's a great that's a great question. So let's break these in two bits. On the first hand is, is this hate speech uh, as it exists, uh, that's certainly the argument of a lot of these uh, folks like the Post who are, and the congressman who are criticizing it. Ultimately, and I will get to the second half, but let's be clear, the first half I don't think is particularly relevant as a question of the hypocrisy involved here, right? The, in the Yale situation, uh, they were making a big deal out of having a registered, a recognized hate group come on campus and talk about how gay people should be castrated and such. So if that's what we're talking about on that side, this whether or not this is hate speech really isn't relevant to the question of the hypocrisy there. I also made the argument in the piece that 
I actually think that if you believe this is hate speech, it supercharges the hypocrisy, right? If it's on the border, whatever. But if you think this is hate speech and you were willing to defend the hate speech of groups like ADF, then you not doing it here really is telling on yourself. So I think if this were hate speech, it actually makes the hypocrisy worse. Now, to the other question of does this constitute hate speech, most of the speech does not really. Uh, there, there, there is a question in a couple places that I would point to, but for the most part, the speech does not make calls to violence in any way. The speech is talking about incidents that actually happened, like the Jordan Neely killing and the uh, in certain and killing of a journalist in Palestine, and so on. So most of what it does is just point to factual events and say that those are instances where we need lawyers to stand up for people's rights. So it's hard to consider any of that really hate speech as much as the police don't like being criticized and nor do, uh, I'm sure, the Israeli government. Those are kind of factual statements. Now, that said, at one point in the speech, she does utilize the term Zionism, which I I personally cringe at whenever I hear. I always feel like it's about to be followed by, yeah, like it's just so wrapped up in all sorts of anti-Semitic tropes historically that whenever anyone, what? It's overdetermined. It's an overdetermined term. Yeah, I think that I think that's fair, and it's it's got so much baggage that that in the anti-Semitic world that I feel like anytime anyone brings it up, it does. I mean, it is going to create sense that that's what you're doing. And so that that is obviously problematic. That said, I will also say that I find the term equally troubling as a political matter within Israeli politics. The right-wing coalition that governs the country often uses it as a cudgel against their their political rivals, suggesting that if you don't support their policies, you aren't sufficiently being Zionist, which... You know, I when, when that's the way in which the term is being determined within that political world, then you understand a little bit why people are taking to using it as something that they're against. Uh, I think it's really unfortunate that the term is getting tossed around that way. I would personally always avoid it. That said, is it hate speech merely to use it offhandedly in this way? Potentially, it's not great, but it is something nonetheless, regardless of how you feel, it is something clearly covered by principles of free speech. So that, that's the long-winded way of dealing with that. I, obviously in the piece, like this is definitely the gotcha question because my piece doesn't talk about that at all because I really focus on the hypocrisy. You bypassed and, it for the sake yeah, well, of the I mean, legal it, argument. Well, I mean, that's a good, I mean, bypassed potentially. On the other hand, I actually... Don't know. Well, bracket it was almost if you like, like that better. You bracket well, the question of if it's if it constitutes hate speech and assume it hates speech for the sake of argument. Well, sort of. Except I, I do it because I think that it supercharges the turn, as we would say in our like rhetorical engagement lingo. Like, if it's hate speech, it makes the hypocrisy worse. So I just went ahead and said we don't even need to dispense with this because if if you take the most extreme read of this against her, it it results the, in, in the point that I'm making. So either, so either it's not a big deal at all because it's nothing, or it is, and then that just supercharges the hypocrisy. So it was one of those, in 
judicial opinion writing terms that say we don't even need to reach that question sort of moment. But yeah, no, but it is fair. And it is something that is coming up. Uh, the, the NYU situation a few, mo- few weeks ago, there was another one of these protests of a speaker on campus that got a lot of press, uh, mostly because NYU law misused the phrase heckler's veto again, like everybody seems to. But in that case, it really did deal with the Z word. So it is a real valid question to get into how people approach criticism of a government's policies without draping it in anti-Semitic tropes, uh, which is an ongoing problem and an ongoing thing worth calling out. I just think it's something that you call out by flagging it, denouncing it, and protesting it, not that you call out by trying to take away a school's tax dollar funding, you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, to, to a point you made about the, uh, what was it? You were mm-hmm. saying it wasn't, there were some parts where that weren't hate speech. She was just recounting things that actually happened. The thing that yeah. I find interesting is that overlap between where uh, the mention of a fact or a purported fact in itself could be interpreted as hate speech. Like there's mm-hmm. a lot of thing I see a lot in like um, online communities because usually people don't have the heart to say this shit in real life. It'll be like 1352 as like a shorthand for like say black people are 13% of the population, but they percent but they commit mm-hmm. 52% of the aggressive crimes. One, the data is subject on that. You know, there's a there's a whole bunch of like ways of getting into the the, the meat of the data. Like, the, how do you account for? Overrepresentation of crimes. How do you account for the under underrepresentation of crimes? How do you how does this how is this also reflected by over policing what have you? But just saying thirteen fifty two is a great shorthand for black people are inherently violent, right? Yeah. So like, I where, like, where there are things where there are things where are things that are that are given that are that are presented as if they are just a fact, but the way that they are being presented is you know has yeah. baggage to it, is overdetermined by the context in which it is being said. Like, for example- That's fair. So we're like, even though, even if you say the thing, people understand the arguments you're making rather than what you're saying. So if I was like, oh, cops, 40%, like some people take it as shorthand for- Right, like, right, right. It is documented that police officers, about 40% of them reported being domestic abusers toward their partners, right? So if yeah. I say that, we're not even talking about the numbers themselves. That's me saying cops are inherently violent, Right. So mm-hmm. I think that is an interesting space where, like, you say, where if you have a person could say, "Oh, a person was killed in a train," and that's taken as hate speech because of the surrounding discourse rather than the right. fact of what was said, and that's what I think is interesting. Yeah, no, that I mean that is fair. I think there there are definitely facts that can operate that way. Are these those facts? That's a that's an interesting question. I, it definitely seems like there's people out there who think that that think that is true. On the other hand, you, part of the issue with a lot of these, like the 40% or whatever is, like you said, it's it's more the context than mm-hmm. the number itself. And while it's bringing yeah. in baggage, just not mm-hmm. mentioning it is, you know, also problematic because yeah. understanding that baggage is important. A great amount of hate speech and the uh, normalization and incorporation of people who otherwise wouldn't be part of hate groups into such groups is dog whistles. Like how Mm -hmm. do we factor in dog whistles and hate speech and public and public speech acts? I think it's an open question and I'm not sure how to answer it. Yeah. I just, I mean, I don't know what you thought. Like I, I didn't see other than the parts where she goes to the level of talking about fighting, quote unquote, fighting Zionism, which is a thing that she says in there. I didn't, 
I didn't think anything else in the speech reached that point as far as carrying any of that negative baggage. Uh, I that obviously I did cringe at, but I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, didn't track as such for me, but in my mm-hmm. mind, like the hate yeah. speech I saw, there were like comments on Twitter saying like. Because uh, there was one part where she was like, "We need to fight white supremacy," and then someone mm-hmm. was like, "I hope that she's a victim of the of the laws. I hope that she's a victim of the things that the laws are trying to prevent, and that the laws won't save her." Like that's a threat, <laughs> like <laughs> or like if not a threat, like clearly wishing harm on someone. I, I'm, I'm, I think those sorts of statements more approach cause to action, cause to violence than what she did. I mean, the way, yeah, right. Like, uh, throughout the speech, though, I mean, it is very much a law school graduation speech. The calls that she keeps making is to lawyers to do what they've now been trained to do, to use the system to stop these abuses that she's outlining. So, I mean, it's a threat, but it is a litigation threat uh, that she's making in the speech, which I don't see as problematic. Yeah. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Hey, Gee, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Gee, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network. Available wherever podcasts are found. All right. So what, unfortunately, you weren't here last week because the week before your story had been the top story of the week and we wanted to talk about it, but you weren't oh, here. So we're going to talk about it now. Yeah. So y'all may be familiar with uh, Amy Cooper. It was a, a white woman that cried wolf on a bird watcher in Central Park. And in the meantime, she was choking her dog out. Mm-hmm. Um, she basically tried to call a hit on him. She called the police officer and said that she was being threatened. No real merit. And after the place she was working, decided to let go of her because one, it was just a PR photo to have her working for you at that time. She sued for defamation mm-hmm. um, under the claim that their employers said that after an internal review, we decided that we no longer want her to work here. We do not condone racist behavior. We don't condone racism. Her, her counsel is like, oh, they called her a racist. They're implying that they had access to some information that the general public didn't have. And the judges are like, did you see the video? <laughs> like, like yeah, it was it was a it was a beautiful dis you. <laughs> like, yeah. And each time and each, and each time the attorney was like, well, uh, if if you and I wouldn't say it that way. But everyone's like, well, we would. 
<laughs> like yeah. there was no there was no room for um the sort of hand holding that you would expect of uh you know this situation how how it I mean, tends what, to go down one thing from the oral argument that I- that, that did confuse me is one of the things that the lawyer said was, well, and then they called her racist and the judges were like, no, they didn't. They didn't call her racist. They said they aren't condoning racism. I don't know about that. I, I thought I thought the judges were probably wrong on that point. I think that, that more or less is saying that somebody was a racist, at least within a certain instance. Mm-hmm. I also just don't understand why that was who cares. Like, it, it's not defamation. Yeah. Like it, saying that somebody's racist is pure opinion. Like they're based on, you know, you can watch the video and come to whatever conclusion. I, I mean, I I don't know as though you, it's easy to come to an opposite one, but you can watch the video and come to a conclusion. And that's an opinion. Like, and opinions aren't defamation. Like, it's a statement of fact. Did this thing happen? Her employer looked at it, said, yes, this happened, and then made a decision. Like, it's not defamation, which I think the judges were, with the exception of that little bit where they were trying to you know, cut the baby on whether it was racist or racism and whether or not there was a distinction. The judges seem pretty, pretty fixated on, you don't get to say that this is anything but an opinion. Yeah. Well, I think it's one of those things where like, you know, when there's a person that you really don't like and they say something Mm -hmm. that's hard to object to, like, oh, it's Wednesday. And then you're like, well, it depends on the time zone, really. I think it was one of those things. I just think they didn't want to give counsel any any room right. <laughs> to make the bum ass arguments he was making. Um, so you know that was that was just my read of the situation. Like Judge Nathan was like, there was one part where I'm pretty sure it was Judge Nathan was going off on you don't when you say they conducted an investigation, you're leaving out into this incident. Well, you should be saying those words. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I think it's pretty clear. I don't know as though there's some other incident that we're all talking about, but yeah, no, they were, they seemed no, that like was, they were. That was the stakes. That was the stakes of the case. What the, what, yeah, the, what they right. were trying to argue is that there was, yeah. that the firm made it seem as if there was some other incidents that they were privy to that the general public was not. Oh, okay. So yeah, that was the. I, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Like, it's yeah okay so th- so that's fair they were really on top of that but mm-hmm. yeah it's so just the judge still saying not, that it was so yeah. the judge saying okay. that was to say you're misrepresenting I see, <laughs> like I the see, judge I see. Okay. the judge was the judge by clarifying in that way was doing a bit of lowering from the bench it's like we're not yeah. letting you get away from m- messing with the fa- messing with the fact pattern you're not on the supreme court only they can do that you have to actually represent what happened <laughs> great yeah so Things are going badly for uh, for old for old Ames. Uh, yeah, it, it, defamation. Uh, it, well, it's a thing that's important because we we hear about it a lot. You know, like people toss around defamation all the time. I mean, we have we had uh, like Trump's always complaining about it, but it it's one of those things that like it is less frequent than people seem to think it is because most times people are making opinion claims, not misrepresenting facts and so yeah so the other big story that kind of dominated the beginning of this week was there were some or the beginning of last week i should say there were there was apparently an attorney who a couple of attorneys let's say for being to be clear who filed an opposition uh, af- they filed it not as a brief they filed it as an an affidavit in opposition to a motion to dismiss in a personal injury case in federal court. And 
it's cited. It was a it's a complex legal question, actually. It's about a whether an international treaty controls whether a case has its a personal injury case has the statute of limitations told just because the airline happens to be in bankruptcy for the time and does it carry over if they come out of bankruptcy do you get to revive that claim does state law control or international law for an for an international airline blah 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 so that's the question and the affidavit has some very on point claims and some on point precedent citing case law that outlined how their claim would survive that And then the other side and the judge tried to look up that case law, and it wasn't there. Just didn't exist. This is why you don't do your research, people, because then you let other people get away. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the more interesting story. (laughs) Well, it is. And I'm glad you said that, because that is the story that, as we took it, a lot of the mainstream media took this as, because the reason this happened is that the lawyer whose case it was, but not who filed the affidavit. That's another procedural issue here. Uh, The lawyer who owned this case brought it in state court. It got removed to federal court. He's not admitted in federal court, so one of his partners actually filed it under his name, but it was written by the person who actually runs the case. That person chose to use ChatGPT to do some research for him, and it came up with these dead-on-point decisions, but it was making all of it up. Because fundamentally, ChatGPT is there to give you the answers you like, and it will, it will give them to you whether or not they're real. This is why we always talk in the AI world, those of us who cover legal tech, about how the challenge that's going to dominate the tech world in, for us is going to be about building guardrails. Because left to its own devices, AI is going to do some some wacky things. Uh, so they fought, he ran this search through chat GPT, found something that was perfectly on point, put it in this, in this filing, never bothered to check whether or not this was really real. Uh, when he was confronted with, is this real? Allegedly, his response was to ask chat GPT, is, 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 are these cases real? And GPT was like, of course they are, brah. Here, here they are, uh, and because it will go to the length of reproducing what it thinks looks like an opinion for you, if if you ask it to, uh, even if it's fake. Uh, so ultimately, that's where things stood. Uh, this is not a young lawyer. This is a lawyer with years of experience who just didn't know ChatGPT was capable of hallucinating. He says uh, he assumed that he was basically asking a legal database, uh, which if you think, think of it this way, if if you asked Westlaw for a case and Westlaw gave you a case and then you were like, oh, was that case real? And it said, yeah, here it is. You would trust that. In this guy's mind, that's what ChatGPT was doing. Uh, in reality, ChatGPT is not a legal database. It draws upon information and uh, guesses at answers based on what it thinks you might want to hear. Usually that works out right. In this case, it did not. Uh, but the real problem here, to get back to what you said about doing your research, is all this guy needed to do at any point was look at the cases that he was citing. How many cases do you put in a goddamn brief, right? Like 10, 15? Read them. You know, like, like you've got these sites. Go, go ahead and read them. I mean, that's basic 
low-level lawyering work. Uh, so I don't. So even though the mainstream media went off on this is what happens when you trust ChatGPT and ChatGPT is a danger and AI is not going to replace lawyers, yada yada. It, that's not really the question here. I mean, this isn't really a tech issue. This is a bargain basement legal issue. Like all you need to do is do your research and due diligence into what you're citing before you submit it to a court. So these lawyers are in some trouble. The judge has filed a order to show cause, wants them to show up and explain why they shouldn't be sanctioned or carried over to discipline, so on. I feel like yeah. the reason should be, come on, I'm a little guy. I wear glasses. I mean, it, it won't kind work, of, but it should be the reason. I mean, it kind of is. Uh, they absolutely <laughs> are leaning into, oh, my God, I had no idea. I had no idea. I never intended to do it this way. I kept asking it to prove that it was right, and it kept giving me answers saying, of course I'm right. Uh, and I just trusted that, which, you know, is wrong. Uh, but it is... That's the issue here. Like the AI, whatever. Chat GPT should not be used for this sort of stuff. If for no other reason than Chat GPT is a retail facing novelty, uh, the underlying technology is actually super sophisticated. And many legal tech companies are now integrating that underlying technology into legal specific applications. Those you can trust. Well, I mean, you'd still want to read the cases because that's basic diligence. But those are probably going to give you good answers, but don't be using a novelty chatbot to write briefs. Especially not in such a niche legal area, which is the funny thing in my mind, because I imagine it was like just some some run of the mill tort case. Nobody would have checked, but like, yeah. I would imagine like if I think the only maybe one of the other areas that this could have happened would be if it was like a qualified immunity case. And they were like, no, this is too spot on. No, you mean to tell me this happened? Well, right. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, and honestly, that's kind of the issue. Like, one, I think people were going to check no matter what. I, I talked to some folks who were less who are overly skeptical and think that these lawyers were trying to pull a fast one with this. And I was like, no, they this is Occam's razor situation. Nobody would try to pull this fast one because you would assume the other side would read the cases. You can't make up a case because the other side is absolutely going to look it up so that they can file a reply. So no one was trying to pull a fast one because that would be stupid. Uh, but you're right about the, the niche issue. And that's what got me uh, that a lot of people weren't writing about when in their coverage of it was the big quote that he has, which has a lot of these cases internally cited in, that cites to a case that doesn't exist and that has multiple internal citations to cases that don't exist, is like a whole page explaining in the specific case where someone has been bankrupt, but the Montreal Protocol governs, <laughs> but it's a state. And I'm like, when there's a whole page that is entirely on point, you that's a red flag. They, yeah. There's no way this has come up exactly like this before. Like that, that should have been the first the first moment where you started wondering if this made any sense. No, ChatGP was like, oh, this is the old Montreal bankruptcy <laughs> treaty. <laughs> I saw this uh, back in 94. <laughs> exactly. Oh, yeah, this one. Uh, yeah, no, so that's... So, yeah, don't use ChatGPT. Don't be afraid of other AI technologies that are being put together by competent folks because... Those are going to be useful, but in no event does it mean that you don't you don't research on the back end. I mean, like, like think about it. The, the way this is going to work 
is you're going to get re- we're going to reach a point, and we're not going to replace lawyers, but going to reach a point where you ask a real AI-driven applica- legal application to give you the case law that deals with this sort of situation, and it is going to it's going to come up with answers, many of which are going to be fake. The company that built it, if they built it prudently, will have built guardrails and checks in there so that it doesn't report to you all the fake ones. It only reports to you the good ones. And then you're going to get your answers and you're going to print them out and then you're going to read them. And that's going to, that's not replacing lawyers, but it's going to take a task that normally would, you would bill five or six hours for, and it's going to replace it to billing one hour for. That's what's going to happen. It's a, it's not that GPT is going to write these briefs and you're going to submit them without sight unseen, you know? Anyway. All right. I think that's good. We've been going on for a while here, so let's uh, let people get back to their days. Everybody, you should be subscribed to the show so you get the new episodes when they come out. You should be reading Above the Law so you read these and other stories before we chat about them. You should be following us on social media. I'm at Joseph Patrice. He's at Rights for Rent, the W, like he's writing for rent. Uh, so it's kind of a joke. Rent, you, yeah, kind yeah, joke. yeah, I mean, it works. I mean, look, look yeah. I for a long time, I said Rights for Rent, all, and then somebody pointed out, I can't find him at R-I-G-H-T, and I was like, oh yeah, I guess that's fair. <laughs> anyway, uh, you should uh, follow Above the Law. It's at ATL blog. You can, I guess I'm Joe Patrice at, at Blue Sky. I haven't really done much over there, but I'm I'm playing around. So, are you on any of the alternative ones yet? I'm on Facebook, man. No, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean more like a Mastodon <laughs> Blue Sky situation. I know, I know, I know. That's okay. my answer. I'm on Facebook. Fair enough. So, uh, you should be listening to this show, the Jabot, the which Catherine hosts. You can listen to the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable, which I'm a panelist on. You should be listening to all the other offerings from the Legal Talk Network. And I think that brings us to an end. Thanks ever. Oh, thanks to sponsors and all, and uh, thanks everybody for listening. Read your own briefs. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the unbillable hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.